0: Additionally, in this episode, my friend Lars Doucet joins us as a co-host. Well, Devin, how are you doing this evening?
1: I'm doing great. Uh, It's nice to be here. I've been really looking forward to this. How are you guys doing?
0: We're doing great. Uh, Thank you so much for taking the time to to come on the show today. Do you mind giving us kind of a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in?
1: For sure. Um, So I'm I'm a bit all over the map, uh, but I, I studied computer science and economics at Stanford. Um, while I was there, I was the editor in chief of the Stanford Review, which is a um, infamous paper at times on campus. Um, I, after that, I graduated and I was a software engineer at a number of tech companies, um, most notably Affirm, which is a buy now pay later startup um, that, that sort of is trying to reinvent the way that credit works, and then. Uh, After that, I transitioned and became a product manager and was the founder of GitHub Sponsors, which introduced money into GitHub and um, achieved $10 million of annual recurring revenue within 18 months. And then later ran the the department that was responsible for building all tools uh, for open source developers at GitHub. And then throughout all of these things, um, a love of mine has always been urban economics, architecture, street design. And so I've had a pretty active blog where I just talk about the things that I love the most. Um, and I tweet a lot about that stuff as well.
0: I love that. I love that. Uh, Devin, you recently visited uh, Prospero. Is it Prospero? How do you pronounce it?
1: Yeah, uh, I pronounce it oh, Prospera. I it. Some people say Prospera. I, okay. I, I've heard th- different things from even the team at Prospera, okay, so not, but the accent is on the O, so like if you know, and it's a Spanish-speaking country, so I think it's Prospera.
0: <laughs> gotcha, good, good to know. So Prospera, it's a it's a for the listeners, is a charter city down in Honduras, um, and you've also visited Panama to explore kind of the state of you know special economic zones and, and how we can use them for different like uh, medical research and different applications, you know, different legal regimes we can operate under. Um, how bullish are you on the future of charter cities and and what are kind of the biggest challenges you see that they face to becoming a robust option for people to migrate to kind of at a large scale?
1: It's a great question. Um, so charter cities is a pretty broad term that I think different people mean different things when they use the term, uh, but they think that they're talking about the same thing. There's a lot of overlap, of course, but there's There's a few terms to familiarize oneself with. One is SEZ, which stands for Special Economic Zone. Sometimes they have different acronyms, but essentially the concept is uh, carving out an area within a jurisdiction and creating different types of laws within that that zone. Um, so that generally it's to develop uh, increase economic development. And um, sometimes it achieves other goals. The most famous special economic zone in history is Shenzhen in China, which in 1980 was uh, part of communist China. Still is, but it was extremely communist. You couldn't own anything. Um, workers couldn't leave their jobs. Yada yada. Th- things didn't work so well. That you know, there were a lot of famines. It wasn't super effective. And then in the 80s. Deng Xiaoping um, said, hey, maybe we should give this commun- th- this uh, capitalism thing a try and maybe we'll do a little bit better. And um, he didn't quite say it that way. He probably, that wouldn't have gone over well. But he then int- introduced a number of reforms into a- this zone of Shenzhen, th- which he did not introduce to the rest of the country uh, until later. And ver- within just a few years, the economy within Shenzhen had dramatically grown, Things were doing a lot better. They had some of the f- first skyscrapers in China. Um, people were making more money than they ever had before, and the experiment was kind of just a resounding success because they tweaked a few key things within the labor law, um, property law, and a few other a few other things. So that's, I think, the that's a sh- that's a special economic zone, um, and charter cities. One of the key themes within charter cities that's the most popular is taking this idea of special economic zones, um, but then instead of having it just within your own country, maybe you would host it somewhere else. Um, I think one of the big things that people mix up with this is a lot of people who think about charter cities are also interested in self-sovereignty, sort of more as an aesthetic preference and choice, uh, which is not to say that that is Contradictory with this more policy-oriented, uh, reform-oriented approach, but it's just a it's just a different uh, focus. And I think that people who are really interested in one often end up getting pulled into the other as well. Um, and then there's a bunch of other t- topics that are tangentially related, like intentional communities um, and in- innovation zones and things like that. Uh, but so there, there's a lot of different range. That, that could explode into, like, an entire podcast of its own of just, like, saying what is a charter city. Um, but hopefully that's a that's a quick overview. Do you mind repeating the actual question? Because I've spent so much time just defining it.
0: Um, you know, <laughs> what do you think the biggest barrier is for charter cities to become, you know, prosperous? as an example? Like, like, what is the biggest barrier, do you think, to uh, them, them becoming a robust option where high-skilled people can migrate? To them, it, it seems like there's this sovereignty. Uh, ugh, how do you say it? I, I can't say it. sovereignty problem. Yeah, like, yeah, excuse yeah. me, sorry. Uh, we were talking before. Uh, we actually copped on the podcast uh, about that. About how you know it, it seems to be a real challenge. How do you carve out like a space that is your own in this like kind of crowded world?
1: Yeah. So I think the. If it, let's just use the um, economic development version of charter cities as our definition here, um, just to, to focus the conversation. Uh, so, so like sort of trying to recreate what Shenzhen did to to stimulate growth, um, and that's one of Prospera's really big goals in Honduras. And I'd say that one of the biggest challenges is that uh, to build a place where investors and entrepreneurs and people creating things feel safe to build something new within a new system, they have to have confidence that that system will continue to be around in the future. Right. And unfortunately, the the countries that are most open to trying something like a charter city uh, are not the most stable. Honduras was the murder capital of the world for a long time. I, luckily, it is no longer, but I don't think it's too far off. Uh, it has had dramatic regime changes in the past, including a disputed coup in the late two thousands. Um, recently, they that the the previous president was a known narco trafficker, and then he was replaced by a stalwart communist who thinks that Venezuela is doing great. And um, so, Honduras is a tough place to be, and it's a tough place to be as a business person who wants to make safe investments that will not get appropriated by the government or not have drug gangs, you know, overrunning them. And <clears throat> I think there's a very strong correlation between countries that are willing to try something new, but then also have a bunch of problems um, versus countries that are more stable, that but are maybe more prosperous already. And so they're not as eager to experiment. I think that if, if you draw a uh, two by two matrix, though, there's some, there's some bright light, which is I think it's less about the stability of the country and more about how rich or how poor it is uh, in terms of how attractive having something like a charter city might be. And so if you put something like, you know, Honduras is in uh, one corner, which is it's both poor and unstable. And then like Switzerland is like rich and very stable. Uh, there's countries like Uruguay is one that I think is it's not that rich. It's not it's also not extremely poor. It's like sort of a middle income country, but it's very stable. and. um I think they, they can see that they could be more wealthy, they could have a, an even better quality of life. And so th- I think a country like that would be a really good place to target building something like this. There's, there's probably other examples that I'm less familiar with, but I happen to spend a lot of time in Uruguay. So I think it's a good target.
2: So to kind of cycle back, like we, we could talk endlessly on how, how do you protect yourself from having the Hong Kong effect happen where you had this great different system. Then they come down and crash on it. But um, real quick, let's talk about what makes these kind of things interesting in the first place. You talked about like three key reforms that happened in Shenzhen that caused this economic miracle to happen. Uh, What, what were those reforms?
1: Oh, let me see if I can think of all the specific details. I'm, I'm hesitant to say exactly what they were because they're, they're specific legal changes, but, but I think like at the, at the high level they make it, made it possible for people, People to own property. They made it possible for for workers to um, leave their jobs. Previously, the government, like the 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 Communist Party in China, would just like assign you a job, and that's what you would do for your whole life, um, which was not great for productivity or motivation. Um, They, I believe, opened. I think this was part of this reform, but I would actually have to look it up. I believe they opened up Shenzhen to foreign investment at that time as well. Um, although they continued to have rules around Chinese ownership that restricted like complete complete foreign investment, it was it was a lot of changes. There weren't there weren't just a handful. Um, it was really a sweeping reform. And I think that one of the big things that China had going for it was that people saw that the China, the the Chinese Communist Party, was probably going to stay around for a long time and even though they had been creating a lot of problems for their population for generations at that point they still had a ridiculous amount of power so they could they could just push reforms through in a way that i think that more democratic co- governments may have a much harder time um i am not saying that we should stop having democracy uh, and uh, like i live i live in the us and not china for a reason but but that is one um benefit that they have. I think it's also useful to look at other cities that have successfully play, uh, had had this, um, have basically pl- gone through this playbook. Um, one of the most notable ones is Dubai, which is also in a certain form of totalitarian government where the, the leader has ultimate power and can just say something's going to happen and then it happens. Um, and, they're able to do things that are quite unpopular because they can just move forward. And with a lot of, I think the essence of a lot of these problems is that, and the reason why it's harder to do in a democratic system is because a lot of these issues are things that by making things better in the long run, it can be make things a little tougher for people in the short run. You have Mm. to make some tough calls. Um, You know, if, if you want to cut down on, on corruption, or you want to um, like live in a world where so-and-so's political power gets gets reduced, you end up in a situation where there's a lot of powerful stakeholders today who want, don't want to see that change happen in the future. And so having democracy and having a, a situation where people can vote on their interests today can, can com- create some issues.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. Devin, I I want to ask you a question. Uh, sorry, it's not not on the outline, but but it is related. It seems like a lot of impetus. Uh and, and interest in charter cities is driven by the fact that a lot of our institutions that we currently have, let's say in the U.S., don't work so well. Well, one of those is just kind of the nature of our cities. Like uh, our, a lot of our cities are incredibly expensive. Uh, you know, some cities like Houston, you know, they're less expensive, but they have this just, you know, crazy sprawl. And it's, it's really difficult to get places. and They're not super livable. Can you talk about kind of uh, what's gone wrong with our cities and maybe some things we can do to fix them?
1: So many things have gone wrong with our cities. Where do I start? but um I think i'll 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 highlight the ones that I find most sad because we just did this to ourselves for like no reason um but there's there's all these rules that we've put in place over time that are completely our doing. they're just like not about the laws of physics whatsoever um that just make it illegal to make things nicer. <laughs> So, like, very specific, petty, but important example. Um, most cities in the United States have rules about minimum street widths. And there's a bunch of reasons for this, but one of the reasons is fire trucks need to be able to get through and, you know, save a house if it's burning down, which is a good reason. Um, and until you think about the fact that we could just make the fire trucks smaller instead of making the roads bigger. And for for whatever reason, the people who wrote those laws did not consider that option. And if you look at places like Japan or um, older towns in England or any place that has more traditional development with very, very narrow streets, they do not have notably higher rates of fire uh, deaths or fire problems. Uh, They just have smaller Fire trucks to get through the tiny little corners and, and, um, and, and save things. And like, you might be thinking, okay, what's the big deal with street widths? Like, it's just, it's just like one random detail, but street widths have a dramatic impl- impact on the amount of space that we use in our cities. And when you have wider street widths, everything is now farther apart. And when it's farther apart, it's now harder to get to where you want to go. Um, you now probably have to get into a car and if, as soon as you have to get into a car, now you actually have to add even more infrastructure, which makes things more far apart. Um, and there's a bunch of other things that we've done in our cities that essentially push things farther apart, uh, that there's this sort of, this, this tragic feedback loop where things being farther apart make other things farther apart and you just end up wasting ridiculous amounts of space, um, I could rant forever. Uh, we we could talk about uh, minimum setbacks. We could talk about minimum parking requirements. We could talk about minimum lot sizes. Um, there's a lot of them. But I think this is one of the big big problems in the cities. And this results in much worse affordability. It re- results in uglier cities. Like if you've ever walked down one of those roads, which is like the word for a road slash street, which, um, you know, it's got maybe two or three lanes of of traffic each way and a tiny little sidewalk and no shade at all because the street is so wide. Like no one wants to walk there. That's incredibly unpleasant. So yeah, it makes our cities uglier and more expensive and less environmentally friendly. It's just like bad overall.
0: That makes sense. Uh, who does cities well in the developed world at this point?
1: I have critiques of all of them, but yeah, um, <laughs> There's different dimensions um, that we could look at, but I think like a lot of people would intuitively say, "Oh, the Europeans are so, so much nicer at making cities." Like I love to go to Rome or London or Paris for vacation, but if you actually look at where they're developing new neighborhoods, uh, and you walk to the outskirts of these these towns, they tend to be pretty crappy themselves, and they 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 actually look a lot like American towns. I still think that they're better because they're working with, um, better bones often, but I don't think that they actually have some like smart secret that we don't have. Um, so that's not the answer. I think I really admire Japan. A lot of, a lot of urbanists is kind of like the obvious answer, but Japan has a number of systems that are very different from American ones, um, that result in denser, more interesting cities. Um, and also much easier to serve with with really good public transit. Um, one of these is that they allow people to build kind of whatever they want on the property uh, as long as it's safe and people can get permits quickly there. Uh, and this you, you see the results of this in um, housing prices in Japan, which are actually not that high, even, even in the densest parts of Tokyo. Another thing I admire a lot about Japan is they have um, – a system of zoning that is i can i call sort of a um a blacklist as opposed to a whitelist approach so in the US uh what i mean by that is in, in the US the typical type of zoning is called euclidean zoning which says in this area you can have single family homes in this area you can have commercial retail in this area you can have industrial by contrast uh japanese zoning um, allows for basically different nuisance levels, saying if any, basically they'll, they'll rate it at like, I think it's like maybe out of 12 or something. And if they rate something as a one out of 12, then they say this has to have like almost no nuisance whatsoever. So it's going to only be like single family homes and very quiet. And if you go all the way up to the opposite scale, you can have like factories and really loud, obnoxious things. But if you want to put your house there, you can. So like, you don't, maybe you wouldn't choose to put your house right next to a factory, but if for some reason you have a a really good motivation to do so, they're not going to stop you. And I think this is great because like, there's a lot of people who would prefer to uh, live right over a loud bar so that they can live, you know, they have a shorter commute and they're willing to make that trade-off. And I think that basically the government shouldn't be telling you what trade-offs you should be making one way or another. Um, The types of zoning I do support are sort of more like around hazards. So I don't think we should be allowing people to put their homes next to like toxic waste sites or something like that Um, because they probably don't have the information they need. So there's limits to what I'm saying. Um, But, but Japan is like well within those limits and the proof is in the pudding that the housing prices are much lower and Japanese cities are really cool.
2: I have a kind of follow-up question to that. So It kind of strikes me that the sort of Euclidean zoning, the the SimCity zoning, as I think of it, um, is is very much a kind of... It feels like a vestige to me of this early modernist, you know, kind of like Eye of God, playing SimCity with the real world kind of mindset that came out of the post-war period, right? And it seems like what you're advocating for is more of... um, not exactly laissez-faire necessarily, but like more, more of just like let people – like let the cities and towns that people actually want to build naturally emerge, right? Would you say that's a fair ac- ac- characterization?
1: I think that is fair, yeah. And and the the if you look at the places that are most desirable in the U.S. to live as measured by housing prices or sort of like the what's the coolest neighborhood in X city articles that you can read, like they're almost always – Towns that were built before the 1930s, hmm. there or, or neighborhoods that were built before the 1930s. Um, so yeah, I think other people want this too.
2: And so to that model, so to bring it back to model cities or or, or charter cities or whatever you want to call it, um, to what degree in the charter cities that you see, do you see those motivated by that same kind of Sim City mindset of it's like, well, I'm going to build a master plan city, but I'm going to do it right. Or, do you, or are there ones out there that are going, it's like, no, we're going to go out here and let the good city emerge and, and restrict these laws? Because I kind of see the tension between it, because it's like, we need to get away from the bad regulations. That's why we need to have a zone that's free from these laws. But then sometimes you see like a kind of a big personality that has like these real specific opinions that wants to like master plan their thing. Do you see a tension there?
1: I think it depends on the scale that we're talking about. Um, and and I, do, I do see a tension there for sure. Um, I think at the scale of, like, realistically, most of these charter city-type projects are still at the scale of neighborhoods. They're mm-hmm. not at the scale of even towns or cities yet. Um, And if you're building sort of, like, a little place or, like, a little campus, I think that you can model that person more as, like, um, a little business that is sort of making decisions according to what its, like, customers and users need as opposed to modeling it as, like, an ecosystem that – can't be controlled and has like a mind of its own. Um, as you scale up, it becomes less and less true. I do think like one of my big critiques of Prospera, and I've, I've told the team this when I when I went and met with them, is that um, all their marketing materials have these beautiful Zaha Hadid buildings. If you're familiar with Zaha buildings, they're these you've probably seen some pictures on like architecture magazines. They have these sort of like very organic, cool shapes. They're very modern and like cool looking. But these marketing materials for Prosper, it's like all of the buildings are Zaha Hadid buildings and they're all designed by a single architect to sort of like fit into this cool like mega structure. And I think that that goes against a lot of the principle they themselves are claiming to have. And, you know, they say, oh, no, no, that's just like, you know, those are just some cool renders. Like that's not what we're going to necessarily, you know, who knows if it's going to turn out that way. But I think that like, the art that you choose to reflect your project it says a lot about your underlying aesthetics and goals and motivations. Um, and so I don't, I don't really buy it. I mean, another, another related one is, um, if you guys have heard of Praxis, uh, there's this like online community that, their, their, their strategy is, um, build an online community first in the cloud, and then we can, um, have some sort of like collective bargaining power to go start a city somewhere else uh we that's a different conversation topic but they if you they have this cool twitter feed where they like post really interesting like art of super cool looking cities um and in some ways i really like them but in other ways i'm really creeped out by it because they never have people in them like these these like pictures of cities that they say that they want to be building like never have humans, and so I'm like, who are the cities for? Uh, and maybe that's just because they like really like the epic city pictures that they have there, but I think it it points to, to like a deep, deeper issue.
2: I went to architecture school uh, for my undergrad, and I just had this huge pet peeve at the time of just like wanna be architecture gods who just, like, were, were in love with buildings, but not necessarily people, and it, it kind of showed in their renderings and their things. I mean, that's not to slag off the whole field. There's amazing architects who really are people first, but I always, um, it, 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 it's a vibe I I, I recognize a lot. Um, speaking of aesthetics and urbanism and stuff, you know, we talked about Urban sprawl and and building roads that are too big and everything. Um, you've talked about urban sprawl being a tragedy of, comm- of the commons. You know, can you talk about that? You know, and this notion of how short term or individual preferences can kind of sabotage the whole, so that nobody gets what they want, even though everyone's doing what they think they want.
1: For sure. So people aim to max maximize roughly two things when they're deciding where to live. This is a very simplified model, but they aim to maximize access to cool stuff, to their job, to their friends, whatever it is. And they also want to maximize space. And these two things are fundamentally in conflict with each other um, because the place in America that it has most access to the most number of cool things is like, you know, the center of Manhattan. Um, But, the center of Manhattan is super expensive precisely because it has a lot of access to things. So people are are trading off on, on this frontier and different people will make different trade-offs. Okay. So that's like point one. When people are thinking about access versus space um, they end up having this choice to make uh, for themselves versus for other people. Like if, if you can, I think Most people's ideal living situation or many, many people if they could get it for free would be to have like a huge mansion that takes up an entire block of Manhattan and then have everybody else in the world like live in Manhattan and continue to do cool stuff for them. So like they can get a huge yard. They can have like all the rooms that they need. They can have their like gym downstairs in their own house, whatever. But they can also have like Broadway within a five minute walk and amazing restaurants and so on. A lot of people would love to have that. Now, the problem comes that the thing that you have more control over is how much space you pick, and not how much space everyone else around you picks. And so, people will tend to go towards the maximum space that they can get for their budget within the access of the things that they need to have access for, and they'll sort of they'll they'll expand their house as big as they can afford to have. Um, And what this means is like, if you're a billionaire, you have a townhouse in uh, a townhouse slash mansion in Manhattan, which takes up a lot of space. Um, Or, you know, if you're not doing quite so well as a billionaire, but you're still making a lot of money, you have like a three bedroom or whatever it is. Um, And what ends up happening over time is because the only thing that people can control is how much space that they take up and as not the people around them, all of these different units around them also expand to be as big as they possibly can, which decreases the access for everybody. So if everybody's house is just like 10% bigger than it otherwise would have been, now everything is also 10% farther than it would be. Um, and actually it, it can work out to be a little worse than that because of some geometry. Um, so you, you end up in the situation where when you're when your neighbor chooses a small house and you could choose between a small house or a big house, you're going to choose the big house and your neighbor is making the same calculus. And so you both end up choosing big houses, but now you're also bo- both worse off on the access, the access axis. Um, so that's, that's why it ends up being a tragedy of the commons because you don't get to control um, like what everybody else is doing.
2: So, how do you fix this? You know, do you have to go build another model city, or can you can you work with what we've got and reform the system from within?
1: Well, I think the the margin I would like to shift on most is just like allow people to build more because if we have more abundance of housing and we can build more densely and higher, and we could you know instead of only allowing single or two story buildings, you allow five story buildings um, in an area. You suddenly just have a lot more space to play with in the first place, and this becomes less of a trade off. So that's that's what I prefer, and I think that like the YIMBY, which stands for Yes in My Backyard, um, movement that these are people who are trying to get cities in the U.S. and and other countries to build more. Um, I think they're making actually pretty good progress in California, where I'm, I'm originally from and I spent most of my life. Um, there's a bunch of state level laws that are allowing accessory dwelling units in people's backyards. So sometimes they're called granny flats. Um, They're requiring neighborhoods that are near transit to um, pass permits more easily. They're getting rid of um, minimum parking requirements. So I think it's making progress, but you know, the building cycle takes a long time. Uh, And like, even though these reforms are coming through, it's just, you know, should have happened like 30 years ago. (laughs) So, um, that's the margin that I think I'm most motivated by. I think the other thing that another factor that's going to come into play, I think now that the pandemic has brought uh, remote work into very widespread acceptance, is that just like where people want to be is going to be very different. We already saw this with the change in in housing prices uh, during COVID where suddenly like, you know, one and two bedroom condos in San Francisco became worth a lot less although that that has since reversed um and th- but then like giant homes with like offices in like the outskirts of sacramento or other sort of uh, smaller cities in, in the us jumped in price um in miami where i live a lot of the housing has actually doubled in price and even though miami's a city it's also kind of more of like a vacation town than uh like a real city from an from economic terms Um, And that's because people have realized, like, oh, I can, like, live somewhere else and still work there and, like, have a very meaningful career. And COVID changed that because – not technologically. We had the technology before, but what it changed is it made it socially acceptable. And ultimately, you can only remote work if, like, the people around you also know how to use Zoom. They also understand what it means for you to be, like, working from your home office and so on. So I think that's going to, like, really change the game in – how things happen. We've, we've seen some reversion now that COVID seems to be petering out a little bit, but I don't think it's going away entirely. I think, I think it's going to be a a huge shift.
0: Makes sense. So maybe less agglomeration effects over time.
1: I don't know about that. Like, I think I actually think it might in some ways have the opposite effect where for, for like superstar cities versus um, sort of the long tail, so, before, like virtually every job you had to have virtually every job you could be doing had to be like physically located relative to something somewhat somewhat closer. And what that meant was like if you are a software engineer in San Francisco or like a finance guy in New York or whatever, like you got you had to be there. and those were sort of the superstar cities for those industries. But it also meant that if you were a doctor in Dallas, you had to like be near your hospital. Um, and your hospital needed to be relatively near your patients or if, um, you know, you were uh, an agricultural consultant in Idaho or something like that, you had to like be close to the farm. Now, suddenly people who don't have to be in the place all the time can live farther away. And like, there's just a lot more area they can be in, even if they need to end up being back in the city a few times a month or something like that. So I could see a world where people end up not living in the San Francisco's um, as much in the world or the Dallas's as much in the world, and they live like three hours away or something like that. But then they still um, maybe maintain a really small apartment in the city so they can go spend time there. Or... If you're perhaps if you're an investor, like a venture capitalist or something like that, you still want to be in the heart of all of it, where all the people go to, because there's still sort of a social network effect of people going to a particular place to know that that's where other people are coming to. Um, I've noticed that there's within my social circle, there's sort of this growing like circuit of cities that people spend time in. They don't always necessarily live in those cities, but they kind of like have this shared common knowledge that if they go to New York, they're going to like see people that they know and like and they they're, they're going to be able to catch up with people even if they live in like the middle of Montana or something like that. So I think this is a long way of saying I think that like the superstar cities will actually almost be relatively more important and they will get like almost all the attention, but then maybe like the mid-tier cities won't be as important at least from economic agglomeration effects. They might get a lot of benefits of people moving there because of schools or they want more space, but I don't think they're moving there for jobs.
0: Mm, Makes sense. So it's like a a long San Francisco, like short Chicago or something like that.
1: Yeah, probably. Although Chicago actually is, has done a relatively good job, not having like a dramatic housing crisis, like other cities. So that's another point. And I'm, I'm just biased towards them. Um, Yes. I think, yeah, long long San Francisco, New York, probably. uh, And then like short, I don't know, like, yeah, Chicago is a good example.
0: Got it, got it. Um, I want to talk about Georgism now a little bit, and uh, economic philosophy, I think all of us are at least somewhat fond of on this call. Um, Can you talk about Georgism, how you found it, what it is, and perhaps why it's important?
1: Georgism blew my mind when I first started reading about it. Um, Growing up, I'd always heard of this sort of, like, dramatic Uh, conflict between capitalism and communism, uh, between capital and labor. And Georgism introduced this concept that became seemed so obvious as soon as I thought about it, but I had just not thought about, which was that there's not just two types of things in the world. There's not just labor and capital. There's also natural resources, which are fundamentally different than the other two. Um, And the fundamental difference is we can't make more of them. (laughs) Um, And I'd been always just like lumping that in with capital where like, yeah, land is capital. We, that's like the, the way we talk about it. Land is capital. Um, you know, um, radio spectrum is capital, whatever. Like this is a thing that someone can pay for in their accounting. They like account for it and they call it like capital, whatever, but they're really different. And I think that it actually ends up um, marrying the, the issues that capitalism and communism both point out. Um, and I think it sort of explains why – it's be, to me, I feel like there's just, like, this big – there's this big misunderstanding between communists and capitalists. And, like, they're actually pointing at a lot of the same problems, and those problems stem from monopolization of natural resources. Um, so that's one of the big things that it meant to me is, like, it felt like there were smart people I knew who are both on, like, the – economic left and the economic right or whatever we want to call call that spectrum who i'm like you're both smart and you both actually want like the world to be better like why are you disagreeing like what's the problem and i think i think the reason is like we've just been using the wrong words to describe describe things
0: it's a great crux it's a great crux there i i i'm, I'm curious um the, the the big Georgia's policy is a single tax, it's a land value tax. You know, Milton Friedman's for this. You know, William F. Buckley's for this. So people on the right, as well as a, a lot of people on the left, as well, uh, are interested in it. You know, what do you think about single taxes, land taxes as a as a substitute for other s- sorts of taxation?
1: I would love to see it happen. Um, I I think it's. I don't see it as like super likely to happen, though. At at like uh, this. At, like, certainly the federal level or at, like, state and and um, city levels. Especially, I mean, I'm coming from the California context where we have Prop 13, which is, like, the anti-LVT. It's like, how about instead of paying high land taxes, you pay low land taxes? Yes, that, doesn't man. that sound fun? And super popular. Like, there's all those stories, you know, there's the story of, like, the grandma who can't pay her property tax bill. And so she gets like kicked out of her house and like, that's really sad. And people, people don't like that. So they say, yeah, Yeah. property taxes are bad. Um, But so, so I think that it's like kind of unlikely. And like, that's not where I personally am trying to push my weight. Although I would love to see it happen. I think that there's much more potential to have something that is effectively a land value tax. But is not called that. And Mm. it takes a different form that someone is much more willing to pay. So, um, for example, I think that every time you enter Disneyland and you pay your gate pass, you are effectively paying a land value tax. And people are pretty thrilled to do it because they love Disneyland. Um, there's, you know, you could also, this is more of a stretch, but you could argue that um, when you pay to go to a university and you're like, you paying for tuition, you're kind of actually paying like to be there on that land and be in that environment and soak it up. Uh, and so that's kind of like a land value tax as well. And people are also pretty happy to do that, especially uh, when the government forgives their loans, but that's a different rant. Um, and um, so people, I think that like I think that one of the problems that property tax and or land taxes, uh, which are slightly different, but for the sake of this conversation, I think quite quite similar. One of the problems they have is that they just have really bad branding. They, like you don't really understand what you're getting when you pay the property tax. When people say that they've like purchased a property, I think like right now I'm 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 at the age where a bunch of my friends are starting to like buy houses for the first time. And I think a lot of them, going into it, think like, I own this thing now. I can do whatever I want with it. This is like my land. And then when they learn that they're gonna have this like huge property tax bill, they're like, what? Like I thought I owned this. <laughs> like like whose right is it? And I think that we have this like language around ownership that um, makes that a pretty reasonable reaction because it's just not how we talk about owning a home or any other any other property. Like you don't you don't pay a tax on owning your computer for example, or, or anything else. Um, so I think another, another related concept that really needs rebranding is the HOA that like homeowners association, because like a homeowners association, like if it's, if it's doing something really well, it could make the place you live like really lovely and could make your life a lot better. But instead we kind of just think of it as this like drain of energy and resources and just sucks and all these unpleasant conversations and, and so on. So the law, this is my long way of saying that I think there's like really cool business opportunities actually to go out and build communities that take sort of these, these principles of like, what would it mean to build just like the most amazing environment that people are really excited to pay for? And, don't call it a property tax. Call it like a gate pass or something like that. And I think you're going to effectively have the same results, but uh, without all, all the political pushback.
0: Mm-hmm. That's great. Lars, well, did you have a question?
2: Um, not specifically on that. Um, but I was, So are you thinking that the opportunity is for more of these things that take like a more, you know, high-minded economic policy of how a city should be done and to allow it to emerge? Do you think the opportunity then is in new cities, or do you think there's a way to reform existing cities? You know, kind of harkening back to our, exist- our earlier question.
1: Yeah, um, with this particular mechanism, I don't see an easy way to apply it to existing cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but I haven't I haven't thought of it. I mean, like, I think for the most naive version is like have a place like disneyland or like a people hate this term but like a gated community where you like pay have to pay to enter um and like that only works if people sort of agree to it in advance whereas if you were to put like a big fence around manhattan and say like you're gonna pay me 50 dollars every time you enter or something that would not go over well um so at least the naive version i don't see a way for it to work in existing cities but that's doesn't mean that there's not some cleverer way that I haven't thought of.
0: Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, Devin, are you down for a round of overrated or underrated? Sure. Awesome. So I'll throw out a term, um, tell us whether it's overrated, underrated, correctly rated, and uh, perhaps a sentence or two. Why? Um, So the first one is Miami, overrated or underrated?
1: Within my friends, which I would describe as like, Ambitious nerds on the internet. I think Miami is really underrated. Um, when they, when nerds look at Miami, they just see like Miami vice and, you know, people doing cocaine and penthouses and stuff. And like yeah. that definitely exists in Miami. I'm not going to say it doesn't. Um, you can definitely find as much cocaine as you want. I'm sure. But something I think that they really miss because they just, all they do is like walk along, you know, ocean drive or something when they come here is it's this very it's actually a very peaceful place. Uh, I live in I live in South Beach um away from the clubs. And I feel like I live in this like charming little village. Um it was developed in just just before uh the Great Depression. Um there's a great book about it called Bubble in the Sun. And but, but what that means is it actually is like built in a fairly traditional style. It's relatively denser in Miami Beach. Um I have, like, a really peaceful, wholesome life here that I don't think is reflected in, uh, you know, if you Google image search Miami, it's, like, none of the images that show up there, like, describe anything of my day-to-day. It's super green. People are happy walking around. It's great. So I love Miami. Very, very underrated
0: so uh less Lambo's, more walkability perhaps
1: yeah I mean I, I like my my Lambo everyone smile too you know, but, yeah, but I think it's a city that has a lot of self-confidence and people sometimes hate that and some people sometimes love that and I personally love it
0: that's cool I love it um uh, the Yimby movement overrated or underrated at this point
1: I think it's probably still underrated um it's really aiming towards deep structural issues that Are are people still don't understand or have visibility on, Um, and they've heard the term, but I think they don't really know what it means.
0: Just how important it is. That's good. That's good. Um, Company towns, overrated or underrated?
1: Um, underrated by most people, but overrated by like CEOs. I think I, I think it's overrated by CEOs because like they have an idea of like a company town as something that they like, they can control their little dominion and make their world. And, you know, and I think that that's not awesome. Um, But I think that most other people are like overly creeped out by them. And actually they provided a lot of necessary infrastructure for people. Um, I'm thinking mostly the ones in the 19th century where these people were often coming from farms and very, very difficult lives. And then they ended up in a situation where, they had a lot of needs taken care of they had much better lives much better opportunities they could like meet their colleagues um be closer to the city so un- underrated and for for most people
0: That's great uh pomodoro overrated or underrated
1: I think underrated um having i'm just a big believer in systems in life and uh i have really a terrible memory and actually terrible self-control, I think. Most people, whenever I tell people this, they are always like, that's not true. You have great <laughs> self-control. But I'm like, no, that's because I've, like, built systems around myself so that I, like, can can do the things that I want to do. And if you were to take away my systems, I think I would, like, get nothing done. So Pomodoro is one of them.
0: That's great. That's great. One more. Uh, podcast as a medium. Overrated or underrated?
1: I think underrated also, which I think I, I think I responded underrated to all of them. But um Podcasts are a very intimate medium. People will say some very controversial things on podcasts sometimes, or or explore ideas that that aren't fully flushed out yet, um, but are potentially really important. And it's it, it sort of allows the, the the host or hosts and interviewee to like kind of go on a journey together in the best versions. And you can't like, I've never seen someone take like a soundbite from a podcast and then like go into an outrage about it and like create a whole thing about it on twitter or whatever um which is certainly not true with tweets uh i also love twitter and i think it gets a lot of bad rap um that that could be maybe a different conversation but but you know i have to admit that there's something about the tweet form that like does sometimes like cause a shitstorm so yeah podcasts i think Creates a sense of intimacy and safeness that allows people to be more intellectually vulnerable, which I think is very healthy because that's how you learn. If you're constantly protecting yourself and constantly thinking like, "How could this be misinterpreted by somebody who is out to get me?" Um, I think you don't you don't think as well, and you don't learn, and you don't solve problems.
0: That's great. I, th- it does seem like there's a little bit less virality in the the audio medium and perhaps with text it's just so much easier to share that you know clip and 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 you know especially on twitter right like to and then and dunk on people for whatever reason um well Devin, uh, thank you so much for for coming on the show today uh where can people find your work where should we send them
1: um well i don't shut up on twitter so <laughs> that's probably the best uh it's just Devin zoogle uh, at, at Devin zoogle um which I'm not I'm not going to spell it for you. It's it's too, it's too hard. But uh, you can look you can look at your podcast app. My name will be there. Um, uh, and then I also have my website devonzoogle.com where I just I pl- I blog every once in a while. Um, and then I also have two podcasts. One um, is called Order Without Design, where uh, I the, the the couple called Elon uh, and Marie Agnes Berto, who are two economists in there. Um, late '80s, who have traveled the world and seen a lot of cities. I, I have a podcast with them. Um, unfortunately, one of them is currently really ill, so we've put it on pause. But we have a few few episodes there. And then um, the other one is called Tools and Craft, which is around com- computing interfaces and uh, tools for thought and how to how to help ourselves think better.
0: That's great, awesome. Thank you, Devin.
1: Thank you. This is super fun.
0: Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.